Hello, you're listening to Playback Daily. It's Wednesday, the 25th of October. I'm Louise Herity, and here's just some of what's coming up. Um, so that was uh, the original hulking out. He would uh, get angry, transform into a monster, and he couldn't always tell friend from foe. So, I mean, he's uh, cut and paste, I think, uh, the original Hulk. There's nothing to occupy your mind whatsoever. Um, like, you're running down the road, you're falling asleep. Um, there was a couple of times you... Like, I woke up and you're nearly in the ditch. Looking back on our records and that, like, there's 171 people saved in the last 13 years through what we've done with this suicide prevention, you know? That's something, isn't it? It's something. And then that's just not counting the people that might want to come down if they're in distress and come down and have a chat with us, all right? If you think taking on the Dublin Marathon this weekend is a big achievement, well, wait until you hear from ultra runner Keith Russell from Navin. He spoke to Oliver Callan on the nine o'clock show not long after he finished the Big Dogs Backyard Ultra World Championship in Tennessee. Good morning. How's it going? Not so bad. How, more importantly, how are you doing? I'm all right after a few hours sleep. Yeah, <laughs> feeling a bit better now. You got some sleep. Uh, Tell us about this because it's a race that doesn't have a finish line. How long did you uh, ago did you stop running? Um, so I stopped at seven, hour seventy four. Hour um, seventy four. So, hour seventy four. Yeah. <laughs> so I went out on the seventy fifth lap and I didn't make it back in time. Okay. And how long ago is it since you stopped running? Um. This morning was about uh, eight hours, eight or nine hours ago. So you had a small bit of a rest there in the middle of the night. A small bit of sleep, <laughs> bit of food, shower, sleep. <laughs> Give us an idea. I mean, wh- when did you start out? You've been running for 74 hours, you say, or 74 loops. Yeah. Uh, tell us how this race yeah. works, the Big Dogs Backyard Ultra World Championship. Yeah, so it's called the Backyard Ultra, our last one standing. Um, and it's 6.7 kilometres every hour. Um, so there, it's basically a new race every hour. Uh, you have to make it back within the time or you're a DNF or if you don't make it to the start line, you're a DNF. Um, but you just do the same loop um, Did every not hour. Finish. That's what what back. <laughs> okay. Did not finish. Yeah, which, so you've got an hour to do your 6.7-kilometre <laughs> uh, loop. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the, the one here in Tennessee is, uh, so you have a day loop and a night loop. So the day loop is down through a trail um, and you're on that one for 11 hours and then the night one goes on a road and it's literally two turns on a road it's an out and back so that's for 13 hours and you just keep swapping between them It's incredible and so the idea you get your you get your hour so if you if you finish well before the hour you use that time to rest is that how it works? That's exactly it okay. so you have to get a sleep in you have to change your clothes shoes attend to any issues um, you know, so the longer the race goes on, the you know the time becomes more limited. You know, yeah. you feel like you're getting no rest at all. To, you have to be on the start line to go again at the top of every hour. What kind of time do you get as the rest in between each loop? Um, well, the first day I was doing, say, the day loops, I was doing about 43 minutes. Um, the second day I went out to about 46 minutes. And then the third day I was bringing them in about 48 minutes. So, um like the third, by the third day, I was probably getting about twelve minutes rest each each hour. That's incredible. Is this race still going, Keith? Yeah, still on at the moment. <laughs> so there's ten fellas still going on hour ninety four, I think it is. On um, so yeah, in a few hours now they're going to be on to four days of running. Um, but I reckon that it'll, it'll go over the hundred hours. 
were you happy with your 74 loops? You know, I, I came out here with, with a goal of going over 100 hours. Um, but when you, when you take in the, the difference within, like the humidity, the heat out here, the terrain was different, uh, the courses, you know, I, I, was, I was very proud of how I'd done. Um, I gave it everything and the, the, the hour I didn't make it back on, like my body was just so tired. Um, I was tripping over stuff. Like the day loop is so technical with rocks and tree stumps and all that. And I fell twice and trying to get up hills and my body just wasn't reacting at all. <laughs> so um, I knew I'd, I'd put it all, I left it all out there, you know. That is, it's absolutely incredible. Outrageous in, in many ways. How, like, yeah. how are you feeling about it? I'm feeling good, like, and to be honest, like, that was only my fourth race in the Backyard Ultra. Um, right. Like, I started in 2021, uh, and I, I, I hold the Irish national record at the moment of 89 hours. But, like, you know, it's a, it's a growing sport, so, like, the distance is just going to keep increasing. Um, and when you come out here to Tennessee um, to compete in the World Championships, like, you're competing against some of the best ultra runners in the world, and it's yeah. absolutely amazing. Like, it's a, it's a great place to be, you know. And congratulations on being one of our, our greatest ultra runners. As you said, you had the Irish record. Uh, the training for this must yeah. be unbelievable. No, <laughs> it's grueling. <laughs> grueling. Yeah. So, so like, with, with any race, like, you try to replicate uh, what's going to happen within the race. So, I do, like, a lot of sleep deprivation and things like that. And, like, there's, there's weekends there I'd uh, stay awake for 40 hours and I'd be training in between um, and all that sort of thing, you know. So, yeah, look, it's... Yeah things you have to do if you want to compete at a high level um, because like the lads that you're racing against are going to be doing the same thing um, they're going to be putting their body through uh, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of training like that you know the, um, the rest of us who are sleep deprived go a little bit mad without sleep I mean what, yeah. what, goes, what goes through your head when you're out there running just mad all the time <laughs> yeah, just mad all the time but you're in the baking heat I mean do you kind of close your mind down does the robot take over how, how, what are you thinking about yeah, you do. You be, you become very robotic, um, and that's what I was saying. Even on the say the night loop, because it's a, it's straight out and back. Like there's nothing to occupy your mind whatsoever. Um, like you're running down the road, you're falling asleep. Um, there was a couple of times you like I, I woke up and you're nearly in the ditch. So you just sort of, you just sort of pull it back into the centre of the road. Um, and I was only chatting with um, I had a, a girl here. She's from Michigan. Um, so she came down to crew for me um, and I was only ch- chatting there and I was just saying like when you're running down the road and there's fellas running in front of you you can just see them starting to veer off to the side oh. and you know they're starting to fall asleep <laughs> Wow running asleep yeah. uh, you actually haven't yeah. been it sounds dangerous by the way Ah, it's not really as long as you don't go into the hedge. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, that's the only dangerous bit, you know, compared to other, the, the stamina is required. Uh, you actually started running yeah. not quite recently, really, 2016, is it? And um, uh, if, yeah. with your daughter, Alana. Tell us all about Alana. Yeah, so I started running in 2016 with Alana. Um, so Alana had spastic quadriplegic cerebral palsy. Um, and we, we basically, I started running just to, to fundraise, really. Yeah. Um, so we done the Dublin City Marathon in 2017 and Alana passed away about six weeks after that, uh, wow. just suddenly at home. So ever since then, I just sort of, I got into doing ultra marathons just to, it was really my way of um, processing everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and just sort of, it was nearly like getting 
getting out of the whole um the torture of 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 life and and um dealing with Alana's death, you know. Yeah, cuz she, she was very young. Yeah, Alana was eight, yeah. She was just eight years old. When you were training for yeah. that marathon, you you were pushing her in a special running chair. I gathered that you made a real yeah. connection uh, different obviously uh, from before uh, with a, with your daughter. <laughs> Yeah, um, so we would have got a, a running chair donated actually by my father's company. Um, so it was like a three-wheeler chair. Mm. Um, and yeah, like we spent Sunday mornings out running in the Phoenix Park training. And like even this time of year now with the Dublin City Marathon coming up on Sunday, you know, it's um, it's a tough time of year because it brings back a lot of memories of for me. And yeah. like I, I just love doing Dublin City Marathon and I'll, I'll be there on Sunday as well. Um Hopefully, hopefully getting around it some way. But um, yeah, look, you know, it's it's like a daddy daughter day out, isn't it? It's, it's the best looking dad daddy daughter day out I ever had, anyway. You know. Yeah, and she loved the idea of when you'd come in to announce you were off for a run. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd grab her by the legs and drag her to the end of the bed, and she'd uh, she got all excited. Like she you know she couldn't talk, um, she couldn't walk or anything like that, but like. She she knew exactly what was going on. She knew where we were going and what we were doing. And yeah. you know, I think she just loved that time out as well. Of like, um, it was all that st- stimulation, um, like with the sounds and cars and birds and everything else. Like you know, gorgeous. Have those memories. You must be thinking of her yeah. when you're running still. Of course, absolutely. Yeah, I carry her with me every time I go running, and it's, she's the she's the reason why I'm, I am where I am at the moment. Um. And she's the driving factor behind uh, everything that I do within running. It's a good, it's a good inspiration to have. Absolutely. We it should sure also, is. we should also mention your young lad, Harry. Harry, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Harry's, Harry's very, very proud as well. Um, he uh, he wanted to come to the airport with me the other day, um, and we got a picture outside the airport with the island flag and things like that, and. Um, you know, like you can tell, you can tell kids as, as much as you want what you want them to do. But um, I think the actions speak louder than words. And for him to be able to see me doing things like this, it um, it sort of puts into him what you can get from from hard work and dedication. You know. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely amazing, and you should be well proud of yourself. Uh, Seventy four loops of that completely mad race. Uh, yeah. you, you you'll be back home soon. I am. I'm actually flying back in on Saturday morning, early Saturday morning. Um, I think my parents are going to be there to pick me up from the airport and then hope and get ready for Dublin City Marathon on Sunday. <laughs> you're going to run the marathon this? You're not? Yeah, I'm going to run the marathon on Sunday, yeah. <laughs> See, it's, it's a marathon that's close to me. Like It's the, it's the one and only marathon I've done with Alana and it's yeah. one I'll always do, you know, because uh, it brings back, bring back very fond memories with her, so... Um, regardless of how it goes around, I, I'll definitely be there I'll definitely get around it you know Does it feel like a kind of a little skip in the park compared to what you've just done? Well I, just, I don't know about that like, <laughs> I'd rather do uh, I'd rather do an ultramarathon than a 5 day or 10k <laughs> to be honest <laughs> you know it's a, it's a different type of uh, of pressure like with 5k and 10k your heart rate would be through the roof What's it's your an ultramarathon you can walk <laughs> the, uh, the the running nerds would be dying to know what's your Dublin marathon uh, what's your average time or your usual time when you haven't come out of Tennessee having run for 74 hours straight Oh my mar- my Dublin Marathon PB is two fifty eight. 
258. Are they writing, are they writing that down? That's a very... Yeah. <laughs> that's, a good, yeah. that's a good number. Uh, listen, absolute pleasure yeah. and you should be very proud of yourself and uh, thanks a million for thanks chatting to much. us. And uh, say hello no to problem. them all thanks very much for over in Nava. Not at all. Uh, where's your next race then after the Dumpster Mirror? What, what's your kind of next uh, huge plan, by the way, just before I let you go? I don't know, to be honest. Um, You've done enough. I'm just going to take a bit of time now after this to recover and sort of make another plan. But um, with the distance I got um, this year now in uh, the Backyard Ultra here in Tennessee, um, it quite possibly could qualify for it in two years' time again. But as I said, like it's a growing sport, so you just don't know if it is going to be a qualifying time for oh, it either. You have to qualify. So we we'll just have to wait and see. And the very best of luck to Keith Russell and all the other competitors in this weekend's Dublin Marathon. Another inspirational guest featured on the Ray Darcy show today. Jamie Blanche recently won Hero of the Year. He won the award for his volunteer work in suicide prevention with Waterford Marine Search and Rescue. And that was at the National Lottery Good Causes Award last week. Now, before we start, Jamie... The texts are in already. Well, All right. Yeah. Uh, can I say a big congratulations to the dude that is Jamie Blanche. <laughs> well deserved. Such a lovely man. A big hello to Liz's wife and kids as well from Richie, Andrea and oh, family in Galway. So right. That's go. one of my best buddies from Ross, yeah. yeah. Good to see you. Uh, now, you, you've, you've sort of been around three counties but you haven't moved that far. Because, no. No. So, so no. What, you're originally from? So I'm originally from New Ross in County yeah. Wexford. Yeah. And um, I moved to Kilimacow about 20 odd years ago. And all my voluntary work then is in Waterford. Kilmacow is in what county? It's in County Kilkenny. Right. So that's, and that's a fantastic little community down there, you know. It's just, I couldn't have asked for a better place to, you know. And then you do all your work, your voluntary and work. And all my voluntary work then is based all around Waterford and Waterford City. Okay. And, and, and your day job is? Day job is a carpenter. Right. So Busy, I'd say. Oh, sure, look. <laughs> Busy rearing families is what I'm doing, you yeah. know. So, yeah. You have three yeah. children. Three children. Yeah, Fionn, Aoife and Killian, and my wife Elizabeth as well, yes. Yeah, so. What age are they? So Fionn is 21, uh, my daughter Aoife is is 19, and my youngest son Killian is 17. Right. So Now, tell us about uh, your work here in the Waterford Marine Search and Rescue. How long is that in existence? So that was started up in 2010 by Daryl Barry and Declan Barry, two twin brothers there, and, and, um, and we started off with nothing. We got a loan of a boat off uh, fire Carrick River Rescue and an engine. We had three life jackets and a little late before shed. And the two boys in fairness to them and, and the rest of the volunteers just put the boot down and just built ourselves up to this lovely, wonderful headquarters we have right now. Mm. And then we have um, up-to-date equipment then for search and rescue and suicide prevention as well. Okay, so, so there was obviously, the lads felt there was a need for this. So yes, we... we there was a need for it. So we kind of sat down and we just went, do you know what, can we prevent this in some way? You know, and it would save then, you know, for families then, you know, if someone's missing for a certain amount of time. Um, so we sat down and we made a plan, trialled it out, made a few, you know, changes along the way and, and we kind of got a nice little system going there now where if someone is in distress and someone does need to um, to have a chat, you know, or, you know, we're there on a Saturday night, every Saturday night. So it's the estuary there, Waterford City. 
So it's mainly the city in Waterford itself, yes. along the keys of Waterford yeah. City. Yeah, and that, that, I always forget. Which of the sister rivers is that? So that's the Shore. The Shore, right. Yeah, hey, sure. on the River Shore, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the Shore there. That's the Shore and there's a bridge. And you So know. you have a bridge there and you have a lot of, um, you have about a kilometre of um, waterfront there with railings and stuff, you know. So, um, yeah, and, and look, we, we came up with a, an idea to try it out and see if it works. And it has worked. It's been very successful. Okay. You know, um, like looking back on our records and that, like there's 171 people saved in the last 13 years through what we've done with this suicide prevention, you know. That's something, isn't it? It's something. And then that's just not counting the people that might want to come down if they're in distress and come down and have a chat with us. Or Mm. we come across someone who's not, you know. So how does it work in practice? So it's weekend nights, is it? So on a Saturday night, there's four crews so we have four team leaders, four crews, and basically what we have done on a typical Saturday night would be we have a team of possibly 10, 11 people. So we'd have a boat in the water with three persons in that. We'd have a van then, which is a mobile command, at the, parked at the bridge in Waterford City. And then we have um, foxtrots then, which would be people walking up down, up and down the um, quay all night. And it's just eyes everywhere then, you know, and then it's a good time to spot someone if someone's, you know, mm. contemplating. or Right. So, And weeks go by and nothing happens. So weeks could go by and nothing happens. And then you could be busy for a little few weeks at a time, you mm. know, and then you just... It has to be said that although you're volunteers, you're highly trained. We are highly trained. So, like, we we, we start off and we um, we just... I suppose there's a lot... There is a lot in search and rescue. And then with... Uh, suicide prevention as well there's more there's a number so, of modules you can do isn't it is it safe talk or what, what? yeah so we, we started off with the HSE set us up with the safe talk and then you have suicide assist and two, two yes. fabulous courses right and that gave us a few little tools to you know and a few little so just for people who don't know about those just to yeah. explain what they are so they would run you through and if someone approached you and they told you they were not feeling too good with themselves and they were thinking about suicide um, it would give you a bit of, um, how will I say, so so basically, so you don't panic when someone tells you that. You know what so to good. say. You know what to say. And sometimes you just have to listen more so, you know. And um, so they really, they do prepare you, them courses uh, for that. And so I'd imagine in those there's role playing. So they put you in situations. Yes, there's a role play involved. Yes. And then you, and like, so the person says that, under. what do you say in, in response to that? And that's the way it goes yeah, to and Yeah, you know, and, yeah. And, and the little role, role play is brilliant because then whatever your doubts are in your own head, what, you know, you, you need to say or what to say, like, you know, you'll figure it out in the yeah. role play and it's, it's great. And then you have another little course then as well. I won't say little, but another course, which kind of, are you ready for something like this? You uh-huh. know, like the suicide aware, like, is, are you yourself? okay to go and do approach someone that might be you know because it's going to be emotionally taxing on you it's, it's quite emotionally taxing at times you know and um, but like the, the training then as well and we have we have uh, assistance then we feel that we're a little bit you know it's after getting to us so we have okay um, so over the years then you, you have encountered people yes I've encountered a few people over the years, yeah, and we've we've talked to them at the railings and we've talked them down and um and then we've picked a few out of the river as well, you know, who actually ended up going in and then the boat that's saved why we their have lives, the system. Yeah. So basically saved their lives, you want to call it. We, yeah. we you know, we, we just see it as getting someone back to their family really. So so you're you're a swift water rescue technician. Yes. Um it's it's um specialised. I wouldn't call it specialised. <laughs> well, <I don't>, well, <laughs> so you all the firemen 
would be equipped with this um, with this particular skill as well, you know. So it, it's basically what it is, is we would be able to go into fast-flowing rivers, dangerous environments where water is concerned and flooding and that. So, mm. you know, and, you know, we, we'd have the skills and the knowledge and the training to go and do that if someone was trapped in fast-flowing water and, okay. uh, or dangerous situations, yeah. Without, you know, naming names or, you know, identifying anybody, would people come back to you? Um, once in a while, you might get someone to come back and say, "Look, do you know what? That was yeah, that was brilliant." And I, I wasn't in a great place at the time. Do you know, I'm in a better place now. And you know, and only feel lads. You know, it's you know. And isn't it odd that it's it's Saturday nights? Yeah, we pick Saturday night to trial it first. You know, and now it could happen any time, right? No, you I know, know any yes, night or any day or any yeah. time and all that. But we. We can't be out every night because no. we all got a, a, a... But there was obviously research done and this, it was happening on Yeah, so night. yeah, there was a little bit of... We were kind of noticing that um, people were probably feeling a bit more lower on the weekend, maybe. Now, we're not experts in no. how people are feeling, but we kind of we kind of brought it to Saturday nights where we were like, yeah, okay, this, this you know, we're keeping a Saturday night first. Now, we felt there was a demand for more nights well, then we'd have to change around the system a little bit, or, yeah. or try and. How know. many volunteers in total? I know you've you've most of them out the yeah. outside. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're all coming in. There was yeah. a, I thought it was require. Well, we were told to bring them all up as well. You know, yeah, so yeah. yeah. Um, well, you better name check all the people you brought with you. I will. Yeah. So basically, we have Mary, our secretary. Yeah. Wonderful woman keeps us all in tow, keeps the whole organisation running, and uh, it's Mary Condon. Then we have Sharon Heron, Sharon Heron, who'd be my deputy and my my particular crew. Um, brilliant woman just hand it all off to her if I'm not around you know and it's, it's great she does a wonderful job and then we have Bobby Cody and then we have Shannon Tracy as well then, all so. out there so all out there and they're all active and all doing their bit yeah. uh, all part of the Waterford Marine Search and Rescue this is like I, I know you don't like the Hero of the Year uh, moniker uh, it doesn't fit well with you but, but you are doing heroic work all of you in that you're saving lives yes um, like when, when we do it every when we do um, what we do, I suppose, we, we don't be thinking of the hero and the claps in the back. No, of course you don't. All that no, and no. the awards. We, we never, because we're down there for the right reasons, which we we want to help people. Yeah. And and that's basically it. So when someone comes along and says, Jamie Blanche, Hero of the Year with the National Lottery, I'm going, I just cringed. So poor Grania Shogut just had a nightmare with me and say up on the stage <laughs> interviewing, you know. So I was just like, I, I'm not a man for public standing. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah, you yeah. Know? But um, it, yeah, but the National Lottery, I have to say, Ray, they throw on such a show, make every volunteer feel special on the night. You know, it's not the only thing you do. You you're, you work with the Waterford Dragon Boat. So I work work with the Waterford Dragon Boat Club. Um, I'm a senior helm helm with them, and basically what that is, that was set up uh, by a lovely woman called Marcella Sweeney back in 2014 or 13, and uh, it was designed to help breast cancer survivors recover after post surgery, and. Uh, yeah, so and started off there is just going in and and it just built up and built up so as it's well. So it's just bring them out just for a bit bring of Bring them out. So it aids the recovery then with the paddling and the techniques oh, and all that. Oh, yes, and yes. But, but to see the women go down and they're just coming off the boat like they're just full of life then, you know. Okay. Well, there the you go. They're on to as well. Congratulations to our hero, Jamie Blanche from all Waterford Dragon Boat Club. Uh, and uh, just to mention that Jamie Blanche also volunteers at the Waterford Dragon Boat and has been doing so for many years. He's a real asset to the club and he also trains uh, new helms and his patience is really helpful when you're standing nervously on the back of a boat. Uh, he's too modest to mention it himself. Thanks, Maria. So there you go. That's Listen, lovely. great to have you in and continue doing what you're doing, um, Jamie Blanche. And congratulations again on, on being named Hero of the Year. Thanks, Jamie. Thank, Thank you very thanks much, Ray. Thanks Thank for you. having me.
That was Jamie Blanche on The Ray Darcy Show. Text message and email scams can be so sophisticated these days that it's very easy to get conned and reporter Brian O'Connell had the latest on Today with Colm Mungon. Morning, Colm. So tell us about these texts you've been getting. Well, these uh, scam texts will be familiar to many listeners. Some of them can appear to be very credible. For example, about a week or so ago, I got a text from an 087 number. It simply said a customs charge was owed on a package I was waiting on and I had to pay a fee of €2.70. And then it obviously included a link which I was to follow and a supposed ID which I had to enter when I clicked the link. And then about a day or so later, I got a secondary one. This time said it was from gov.ie. It told me I was eligible for a discounted bill under a energy support scheme. And again, all I had to do, Column, to claim this discount was to click a link to a website. And it did look like it was from a legitimate government page. Right. But you didn't decide to see if it was by clicking on it, did you? <laughs> no, I'm a, I'm a long time around. I mean, uh, funny enough, as it happened, I'd ordered a pair of runners online and they were due to arrive. So I had to stop and really think about the first text, which purported to come from on post. Both of them were a scam and they were intended essentially to try and eventually get my credit card details by appearing to look like official text. So we know scam phone calls, scam texts, they're costing Irish businesses. Uh, Comreg had a figure of 300 million euro a year and they said the prevalence of scam calls and messages has really increased in recent years. They found 365,000 cases of fraudulent scans, scams were recorded last year. That's about a thousand a day. So really, I'm not alone. OK, and the post office will put a leaflet through your door, a hard copy saying that you have to pay a customs fee down at your local post office before you collect a packet, if indeed they do want that. Now, you wanted to try and find out who might be behind the 087 numbers or any of the other texts you've been getting and how your number ended up in their hands in the first place. Yes, yeah, so I spoke to a cybersecurity expert who's spending some of her time on the dark web trying to catch the bad guys engaged in trying to scam us out of our money. But first up, I spoke to Detective Superintendent Michael Crine of the Garda National Economic and Crime Bureau. Now, Gardi have had some success recently tackling these gangs. He started by telling me about just how many of these kinds of scams Gardi are dealing with. I came into fraud in 2000 and early 2019. It was prevalent at that stage. And then with COVID 2020 and all our lives moving online, it became extremely prevalent in the year 2021. The last three months, we are seeing a reduction, but overall on the year today compared to last year, it's up about 20%. And they're very credible. I mean, they appear to be very credible, these text messages, the ones I got anyway. There's different types to them. Like there's at least... I would say seven different variations to it. There's the ones where purport to be coming from your bank and you click on a link and they take over your account. Mm-hmm. You didn't have what your one there where it's a, a delivery service or a mm-hmm. service provider where you be asked to pay 99 cent or 199. You're thinking, oh gosh, that's nothing. Even if they do scam me, what, what's the problem? Yeah. But the problem is you're giving away your credit card details. You're giving away all your credit card details, all your personal data to a clone website. How do you go about catching these people, Michael? For example, the people behind the text that were sent to me or sent to anybody else, what, sh- should I be sending them on to my local guardie or, or what should be happening? It's almost impossible to trace it from the victim point of view. Where where we trace them from is from the other end. Mm-hmm. So intelligence led us the organizations, the criminals behind this. Now, some of them are outside the country. Some of them are, are well inside the country. Um, this time last year, we did a number of searches. Uh, it was named, called Operation Elaborate. There was, a, we, there was two what we would call smishing factory search this year. 
one uh, very recently where there was over 20 phones sending out these text messages daily basis and one of the phones have been examined so far and 10,000 of these texts have been sent out. And what kind of revenue are, are these criminals taking in, Michael? Oh, millions, absolute millions have been stolen in, in, in this type of crime. It's uh, very hard to quantify, uh, but it, it's absolutely in, in the millions. It's, it's very, very profitable for very little outlay, shall we say. Brian, people will be struck there listening to Detective Superintendent Michael Crine of the Garden National Economic Crime Bureau speaking to you about, he spoke about factories of these scams and, and breaking them up. What did he mean there? Well, essentially, as you heard, criminals are casting their digital nets as wide as they can. So they hope to get a couple of bites from each cast, essentially. So all they need is is a few people to engage. And in terms of the success of Gardaí, a lot of the success they're having is around the money laundering aspect of these scams, Colin, because obviously criminals have to try and extract the money in some way. Now, before we hear from a cybersecurity expert in the private sector, I asked Detective Superintendent Crine what advice Gardaí would give? First of all, be very, very careful and very, very wary of unsolicited texts. Even if they fit into the trade of a previous genuine text from a bank um, and you never click on links. Banks do not send out links, so you never click on a link. You may think you're on your bank's website. It will be identical to your bank's website, but it is a cloned website. The next advice thing we always give in all these is never give away any personal data. Again, another one is never download any apps. Contact your bank. If you have sent money, the most important thing is contact your bank straight away and ask them to do a recall and also report to the guardian. A lot of these calls people get from, from the reporting to be from banks can be at, you know, times where you're busy, where you have a hundred things on and you're collecting, we'd say, children from the school and everything is happening. So never, don't be rushed into it. Take your time, you know, but don't ever click on a link. That is the, the most important one. OK, and that's number one. And the fact, Michael, that I had got a couple of scam text messages, does that mean that my mobile number has appeared on the dark web somewhere? Sorry, I can't say that it, it hasn't. But more than likely what it is, is a computer generated. It just sends a text to every number in the range from okay. one to whatever. The, and, you know, most of them will be a non-hit. But if there's a hit, there's a hit. Some people think, oh, I'm being targeted. But it's not. It's, it's everybody's being targeted. All our phones have got these text messages. Every one of us gets these text messages. I don't think there's a person in the country that hasn't got one because the computer sends a text to every number in the range limit. All right, Michael crying again. So that's the Garda response. Mm-hmm. And we also heard this week about the importance of changing passwords. I mean, this was uh, data from CyberSkills which showed that passwords such as Liverpool FC, Roy Keane and Glen Rowe Glen Rose is a strange one, isn't it? That's your <laughs> yeah. era, Cullum. That's yeah, exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> They're widely used and easily guessed by hackers. I think globally, the most commonly hacked passwords are one, two, three, four, five, six, and password. I mean, you know. But it's obviously a lot more hassle, I suppose, to change your phone number if hackers have got hold of your number. Like, obviously, in my case, someone has got hold of the number. So just finally, I did speak to one cybersecurity expert about the kinds of stuff they're seeing on the dark web around this whole area, given how frequent these scams are now. So this is Raluca Siciano, and she's CEO of SmartTech 247. It's a cybersecurity organization, and they fight cybercrime. We're seeing people on average being scammed out of nearly 5K. So that's an average. You know, we've seen uh, people being scammed out of 10K, 20K, even more than that. They are also trying to scam people to get them to buy um, vouchers and gift cards. Because gift cards and vouchers are not traceable. So it's an easy way to get money. How did these scam artists get my number? Oh, well, that's the easy part. 
your number is probably on a list somewhere uh you know related to a, a data breach so what's the golden rule here Raluca before I start handing over my money to some criminals well you have to verify that the message is legitimate it's very difficult to catch um these scammers because they use tools and technologies that go undetected in terms then of anything i can do to lessen the amount of scams that are being targeted at me besides changing my phone number there's probably very little is there um that's a very good question uh, generally it's important to ha- to practice um safe cyber hygiene and just remember to change your passwords regularly the reason they have your phone number and your passwords and your email addresses is because you've been part of a data breach just the final thing can you tell me about any bad guys you're chasing at the moment bad guys that we're we're chasing uh the big gangs we help secure some of the world's largest organizations. These are big companies, um, hospitals, research institutions, financial companies that are often targeted by the big criminal uh, groups. So we're constantly chasing, you know, the big uh, ransomware groups and um, the the bigger criminal gangs in order to first understand more about their operations mm-hmm. uh, and secondly, actively protect our customers. Raluca Sacciano, CEO of SmartTech247 with some good advice to everybody there in terms of cyber hygiene. And thanks to Brian O'Connell for that. That was Brian O'Connell's report on Today with Colm O'Mungon. The annual climate summit takes place at Trinity College tomorrow and Moira Hannan had more on Morning Ireland. As somebody who's 21, I think, you know, climate is the biggest issue for our generation. Jennifer Salmon is participating in the summit as the Department of the Environment's current climate youth delegate for Ireland. At COP27 last year, that was the first time that there was a dedicated youth pavilion at a COP summit. So I think it's, you know, the beginning of young people starting to have more involvement at Global Summit. So being asked to speak at the Climate Summit 2023 is really an incredible opportunity for young people to have a voice and to be in the room with the business leaders and policymakers who will be having the impact on our future. Chris Caldwell is a clean tech investor and host of the Conversations on Climate podcast. His summit discussion will focus on how artificial intelligence and technology can help tackle climate change, such as reducing deforestation in the Amazon rainforest. We all know that deforestation, like particularly in the Amazon, poses a massive, massive risk uh, for climate, for biodiversity, for environmental uh, justice and a lot else uh, aside. We spent decades trying to stop it. Uh, the trouble is the Amazon is absolutely vast and we can't possibly keep an eye on it all at once. And this is where AI comes in. Uh, we've got a fantastic startup called uh, Previsia who takes satellite imagery uh, from the European Space Agency and use it to predict where deforestation will happen next. And they do this with really, really kind of cool ideas. So, for example, they've noticed that 90% of deforestation occurs within a few kilometers of roads. Now, but most of these roads are legal and unmapped. But with AI looking at satellite data, they can find all these roads and add them to natural topography, population distributions, and dozens of other trends. And by running this data through machine learning, they're able to predict the likely deforestation hotspots in advance. That really helps the state prosecutors and the indigenous communities to go there and get there in advance and protect the, the, the lands before it's taken down. 
Jane Stout is Professor of Ecology at the School of Natural Sciences in Trinity College. One of the things I'm going to be talking about is the fact that we can't just focus on climate and carbon emissions, but that we need to look at all aspects of the nature crisis. And this includes loss of biodiversity, so loss of the variety of life. We're talking about loss of different species, of different habitats. And, and this loss of diversity in our living systems makes the impacts of climate change worse and also erodes our ability to mitigate and adapt to climate change. So, for example, in the Irish context, um, if we lose biodiversity in terms of losing our peat bogs or draining our peat bogs or degrading our peat bogs, it means they don't support so many different plants. They don't support the plants that hold on to water that, that um, make peat bogs act like a sponge and regulate water flows. And this means that they were then much more susceptible to flooding downstream um, because we haven't got that protective effect of those peat bogs. And it's the recent flooding in Cork that climate youth delegate Jennifer Salmon hopes will bring home the reality of climate change ahead of the summit. My main concern is that people know that climate change is real and it's happening right now because, you know, even when we're to e-post about climate on Instagram, I always go and look at the comments um, like a glutton for punishment because every time I'm always disappointed by the amount of controversy that it causes. To me, you know, climate change is not controversial. It's so real and, well, for us, it's only really starting to begin with all of the weather warnings we're seeing at the moment and, like, the flooding that's happening. You know, in the global south for years, it's been happening and there's drought, famine, flooding and everything going on in the Horn of Africa. I'd love to see more urgency and, you know, people really taking climate seriously. Jennifer Salmon speaking ahead of the Climate Summit taking place at Trinity College in Dublin tomorrow. That was on Morning Ireland. Yesterday we were talking all things bread and today it was all about perfect sandwiches. How to make your own gourmet sambo on a budget and Chef Brian McDermott joined Colm with these tips. I suppose kids are tired, we're coming up to the midterm break and people are probably going to be delighted for a break from making lunches because it's just that nightly thing of deciding what am I going to put in the lunchbox, what's not going to come home in the lunchbox and people are packing maybe sandwiches to go to work and they're tired of the same old thing. So give us a dig out there. You've challenged yourself to make a version of the sandwiches that are on sale on the deli, a better version made at home for a better price. Go. Yeah, and look, there's a case being made for it because how often do we walk along, you know, the street and we see we're lured into the sardos, the artisan breads, the layers, the chutneys, the home-cooked briskets and we think, this is going to be amazing. But, you know, you've lost 13, 14, 15 quid in some occasions. Can we replicate that at home? I think we can because what decisions do you need to make when you're making a sandwich first and foremost? Well, the sandwich is going to be the bread. What is that decision? What do you have that is current? What do you have that people like in your house? You've mentioned it. I think of others and I go, okay, Aoife doesn't really like a sub roll. She likes, you know, a crusty roll. So you're thinking to yourself, am I going to go crusty? So once you make that decision, think of a sandwich as layers of building up. It's almost like tidying the house. Everything you do, it gets better and it feels better and it'll taste better. And there is layers to that sandwich, you know, and, and we'll talk about things, how to avoid it going soggy and all of that. But of course, huge savings to be made as well. Something that we've learned, you know, in our house, because we've gone from four to two, the two girls are gone off to uni and we're thinking, there's a big loaf of bread sitting there, you know, and could it be cheaper? Is it better to buy a half loaf? And I discovered for research for this, no, it's not. It's still better and more affordable to buy full loaf. So what we've started doing is taking two slices into a sandwich bag, popping it in the freezer, taking those two out and either straight to the toaster for a bit of toast 
or just let it defrost overnight and you have fresh bread every morning again. All right, so cutting down on the way. So in terms of, say it's a five or a 5.50 for a sandwich off the shelf, prices a sandwich made at home and how much of a saving before we get into the ingredients of it? Yeah, there's been huge savings and, and I've done it and detailed it throughout this project. You know, and you're thinking of something that's in around seven, eight euro, your typical basic maybe club sandwich, you know, you're, you're making it home for about 2.32 and you're thinking to yourself, wow, that is a huge saving first and foremost. Plus then you're in control and you're adding a lot more flavour. And I think, you know, we overthink sandwiches too much too often. Decide what it is you're going to have. Don't open the fridge and think, ah, there's lots in here. Could I do a cocktail of this? Usually it needs a protein. Always think in the direction of some sort of a chutney. Things that are sticky, maybe like a caramelised red onion, maybe a cheddar that's cheese that's saltiness. Think of that sweet, sour, bitter salt layer buildup. That's what will ensure that you're going to get every sandwich tasting, getting those taste buds going and thinking to yourself, that is beautiful. Then you've got to decide, are you travelling with this sandwich? Are you having it now? Because if you're having it now, maybe you could warm it up. Maybe you could toast it. Maybe you can buy those baguettes. Maybe you could risk them. a bit of tomato in there. Well, you know, I'm not a fan of tomato. I think I've talked about this right. before because, you know, <laughs> the Irish tomato is in season six weeks of the year. And I think there's a lot of water comes out and into your sandwich, which ultimately could destroy it. And, and I don't know about you, Colin, but when you have a bad sandwich, you get really annoyed. Right, particularly well, if you're out and about. And what are your alternatives? You want to keep your sandwich. You mentioned if you're travelling with a sandwich. So talk us through if people do like a bit of a, diff a different flavour and maybe something like tomato in their sandwich, but they don't want it to get soggy. Talk to us about storage and alternatives there. Yeah, I think just looking at tomato for a second, you know, and just glance yourself across the supermarket shelf and you'll find, you know, a tomato, not a tomato puree, but you'll find a sun-dried tomato paste, pesto, then you're into really, really good flavours that have the, the sweetness. You can almost bring the sunshine back into your life at this time of year. And that gets rid of the sliced tomato that's full of water. That will really lift and heighten up the flavours. Um, then if you're going to pack up that sandwich, as you know, little tips are stay away from the likes of cling film. Go, go with greaseproof paper. And why is that? Because it'll start to sweat slightly and depending on the temperature, it'll move between, you know, coming from your fridge if you've made it the night before into your car that you've, you know, you've whacked on the heat because it's so cold these mornings. So that difference in temperature is going to bring a little bit of sweat into it. Greaseproof won't allow that to sweat. And I usually double wrap and I just put a little bit of sellotape on it just to close it. The minute I get to my destination normally for me I'm in the car quite a lot you know I'll keep it in a little cooler bag just put a little ice pack in there and then just take it out for a few minutes open it up allow that room temperature before eating it because we know the likes of cheese improves its flavour at room temperature five minutes of that's enough you'll get 50% better flavour coming from the cheese just slightly bringing it back up to how you, how you would eat in the environment of the office home or otherwise alright and tinfoil same as cling film is it a bit tinfoil rips too easy and if it rips too easy and you get that you know that kind of false air and warm air in the car and if that gets added again it's All just right. going to allow the bread just to get a little bit of dryness on it which I don't like Alright, so you don't like tomatoes but you are recommending a BLT. How do you do a BLT yeah. without the tea? This is what I've done today is say let's notch it up a bit and I'm going with the likes of what I talked about the sun-dried tomato um, and that little bit of pesto or paste gone in there into the mayonnaise and that will just change the dimension of that completely because mayonnaise is made from vinegar we like the sourness, we like the bitterness, you know, all the other components of that sandwich that we're building up. If we go bacon in that, you know, if we want to add that in for the BLT, because that is a classic that you put in there. Again, decide on your bacon. Are you going to crisp it up, grill it? Do you want it that sort of snappy bite or do you want that pull away style of a bacon? And I think, again, the occasion of when you're going to eat it, because, you know, am I eating this at my desk? I know my desk. I know my space. Do I have a canteen or am I going to enjoy that at home this week because we are in midterm? Right. If so, I 
can cut it a different way. I can crisp up that bacon and crispy bacon with maybe a little brush of maple syrup on the top of it after it's been cooked. Then you're into a little bit of sweetness coming in there as well. Smoked. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. I had one last week and there was a Irish whiskey tinge to it. Right. Okay. Sensational. Very good. And just give us a, a brief costing on that because anybody, the BLT people are t- talking at least at least a fiver. What would you be talking about in terms of, of your costing on that? Yeah, less, so much we, less. we've been able to do the BLT homemade sandwich and we've broken it down to 2.23 because you are, you're correct, it's four to five euro in retail. Uh, and we've looked at some of the, you know, the, the posher cafes, deli counters. We're in and around eight euro, seven, eight euro upwards for a BLT. So, you know, you've taken a significant saving here. Um, and of course, you're not adding on the tea because you're either making it at home or you have those facilities within a work environment or otherwise. All right, brisket of beef. Now, mm. it may, it might not be a cut people would buy, but it may be one people have eaten in a sandwich. So this is a high recommendation for a sandwich ingredient from you. Yeah, because for me, it's get the slow cooker out. If it's not out, I guarantee it's going to be out this week or next week because we're into that colder temperature. Plus a brisket, it's more affordable. It's a slow cook. And if you've got that energy saving slow cooker, really what we're going to do is create a bit of a rub for it. What is it? It's sea salt, pepper, some cumin, which is optional, and a bit of paprika. Those are dried spices. Put it onto the outside of the beef. Leave it for about a half an hour. Pop it into your slow cooker. A little bit of stock or water in the bottom of it. Turn it on. Now you are talking seven or eight hours. This is a day before job. But what I tend to do, and I have done this one recently, I use half of it for my dinner that evening, a little bit left over. And and something that I was thinking about putting this together is I've barbecue sauce ready to go. It's been in the fridge, didn't get much use this season because Just of the weather. Just barbecue sauce out of a bottle. Yeah. And then if you pour that in at the end of the bit that you've left aside, pull it with a fork so you've got this pulled beef, barbecue pulled beef. That lures you in again when you see that on the menu. You know, it could be in your artisan sourdough with, you know, eight hour overnight cooked slow brisket barbecue beef. And you're going, wow, with pickles. Break that down, bring it home. That's what you've done here. You've created that beef. You've put the barbecue sauce in. It's got really, really sticky. Now you have the condiment in there. You have the protein in there. So all it really needs, in my opinion, a good strong cheddar with salt crystallizations that are in it and a gherkin if you love it. I absolutely love big slices of gherkin. That is the ultimate sandwich. Maybe sweetened the likes of a brioche bun, brioche roll, bap, soft bap, blah. You decide what the carrier is, but ultimately that is a beautiful gourmet sandwich created at home. All right, zoom out from the meat at the moment. You're going to look at a very seasonal uh, vegetarian option and it's a way of using up some of the leftovers from the arts and crafts that come up around Halloween. Yeah, I need to get my finger out because I haven't done my pumpkin yet. Again, because the two girls are gone, it's the two of us I'm going, I'm getting lazy. But when you do carve out those funny shapes and you think I've got these chunks left over, what do you do with them? Take off the skin, slice them down, put them in a bowl, put in some Irish rapeseed oil, season it if you want. You've got fresh rosemary, put that in and season it with a little bit of salt and pepper. Turn on the pan, caramelise them. Little bit of oil, the oil's already in the bowl. You'll hear this, it'll start to fry them up. Let them go cold. They will cook very quickly when they're thinly sliced. That is a beautiful way of layering up for a sandwich. All I've done and what I'm going to suggest is look at flatbreads. Flatbreads are getting popular. They're readily available. You know, you'll get around about four of them for about a euro, a euro 25. I've seen them. They're plentiful. They're everywhere. Pop them in the toaster, warm them up. Put your little sort of pumpkin now that you have roasted and caramelised onto the top of it, a bit of feta cheese, maybe some rocket or some caramelised red onion chutney or a relish that you have in there. You've got this little sort of 
pizza topped open flatbread style of a snack stroke sandwich that's going on and totally in season at the moment. All right. Uh, the chicken sandwich. Uh, mm. you, you're telling people to swerve away from the pre-packed, pre-cooked chicken in the aisle and towards the fresh meat poultry section and buy some fresh chickens and do them yourself. What what are you putting the what are you putting it into and how do you cook it? Yeah, I just think if you're doing a chicken at the weekend or midweek for a roast chicken, buy two, do an extra one and get it in with the normal roasting practices. We know keep it up off the bottom of the tray. I use carrots and onions and potato to rest it on. Why? Because it's not deep fat frying when the juices are coming out and that heat in the tray. You're creating this void. It's steaming. You can put a little bit of water or stock into the bottom of it and then go the cooking time, 20 minutes per pound weight for whole chicken. But when it's cooked, I take it out and I make a very quick garlic butter. This is just one suggestion. Soften garlic, crush up some, some um, garlic and butter and then put into that some rosemary and parsley and spread that back onto the cooked chicken. Pop it back in for half an hour and you'll find it just caramelising up again. Keep using the word caramelisation because that's flavour. That's roasting. And normal chicken doesn't taste great. But when you cook it, roast it, caramelise it, the flavours improve on it. Let that slightly cool. Carve that down and then you're into beautiful wraps. Maybe add a Caesar dressing to that, some cos lettuce and make your own homemade croutons while that chicken is actually cooking and toast those up. And you've got lots of options from a salad right through to a wrap enclosed, beautiful flavour that's sucking it. And using all parts of it. Absolutely. Don't stick to the breast. No, and you see that leg, you know, that to me is gorgeous. Pull that apart and it'll be nice and soft. And the juices that are left over in the bottom of the pan, drain those, put them back into that leg meat and kind of mush that up because you've got gorgeous flavour going on in that as well. And again, you know, you could do this with maybe a favourite tikka paste, something that you have to fringe coat the chicken and it will be less than half the cost of the premium tikka and Cajun flat pack sliced cooked right. for a week's chicken that we normally pay a premium for. Okay. Mm, that's definitely made me peckish. That was Chef Brian McDermott as heard on today with Colm O'Mongon. Later on the Ray Darcy show, the host was joined by author Ellen Ryan and illustrator Connor Merriman, who told him about their new book. Uh, Gods Don't Cry is the new book by author Ellen Ryan, telling the stories of the gods of Ireland that we may not have heard of before and some that you may have heard of before. Um, these are gods of many abilities and the book is beautifully illustrated by Connor Merriman and Ellen and Connor join us in studio now. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Now, one of the gods that people will be familiar with is Cúchulainn. Yes. Uh, and this little paragraph on the book caught my attention and it'll just set the scene for our listeners, right? So Cúchulainn also grew popular with the girls, you say, as even in his human form, he was a sight to behold. They marvelled over his seven fingers on each hand. The multicoloured moulds on his cheeks and his hair, which was brown at the front, red in the middle and blonde at the back. Cúchulainn kissed many girls and killed many men to invite fame. That's, 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 that's put us right there where that's what we're talking about here yeah. so, so this is your second book it is yeah. the first one concentrated on women yes girls who slay monsters yes. yeah that was the girls which was really well received I'm very grateful to say it was yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and you were writing this in parallel Correct, yeah. I was doing this research over four years on both books and, you know, obviously the, the stories uh, interlink and um, so many of them are related and cross paths. So uh, I was very much uh, forming an idea of who these gods were all, all the way through. OK, will you give us sort of, if you can at all, uh, a context for these gods? Like <laughs> when, where, how, were they just stories told around uh, campfires or what? 
Um, they are a mix. You know, our ancient ancestors were animists. They worshipped the landscape. So many of these gods actually started as mountains, as rivers, as locks. Um, you know, certainly Queen Maeve is considered to have been a hill in Roscommon. Um, you know, we have uh, the, the goddess Bone, who was the River Boyne. And Mananon uh, is considered, he's our sea god, is considered to also be one and the same with the Isle of Man, which of course was one of the Celtic Isles. So, so why would they transform you know, physical, geographical features into gods? I think over time with storytelling, um, you know, storytellers started to uh, give them a human form in right. order to uh, relate to them. And probably, you know, we've, we're always influenced by other cultures. Um, you know, they may have seen many of the stories of the Greek gods being told um, where they did take human form and that may have inspired our an- ancestors to do something similar. Yeah. Um, I suppose we, we can't know for certain, uh, but over time they did take on many more human characteristics um, and and many of our flaws as well, which of course makes them more interesting. In reading both your books, you can see the huge influence that this mythology would have had on DC Comics and Marvel. And and I know, Connor, you you work for Marvel, but I'm just thinking about Coo Cullen. Like Coo Cullen, like if you're going to write a Hulk character. He's the original Hulk. He's the original Hulk. Yeah, he is. Absolutely. Um, Because when he lost it, he went, it became a monster. Yes, it was known as his warp frenzy. Um, So that was uh, the original hulking out. He would uh, get angry, transform into a monster and he couldn't always tell friend from foe. So, I mean, he's uh, cut and paste, I think, uh, the original Hulk. (laughs) You must have had great crack doing this, great fun. Oh, absolutely. Oh my God, it was amazing. I mean, just collaborating with Ellen on this project has just been an absolute dream come true. What's your story? I was saying you work for Marvel. So, most recently you've done a poster for... Loki, um, season two. So, I work freelance with Marvel and Star Wars and Disney here. Um, They're a wonderful team and uh, yeah, we, we do illustrated posters for the movies and TV shows right. um, and like being able to translate those incredible worlds and so such you know big intellectual property like that um, is fantastic and then being able to do it this time for, for our superheroes and our But the brilliant thing gods. about this and you know, I'm, not, I'm sure Marvel are really nice to work with but I'm sure they have a Bible as well <laughs> you know whereas you can let your imagination run wild oh, on these ones catch it. Absolutely and the great thing was you know even though the imagination went off in all corners um, the text and the the rich text that Ellen wrote is so so beautifully done and you know the visual language that you've done in the book is just it was it was a feast to, yes. to explore and the challenge actually was to to pick just one scene to distill each character into there was so much to choose from yeah. um, and that was the great thing Canoe they're all he yes. was a new one on me yeah so a diminutive character yes uh, Canoe they're all had um Dwarfism by by today's uh, reasoning, I suppose. Um, he was not, I'd like to make clear, uh, a, a mythical or magical dwarf uh, in the kind of uh, Lord of the Rings sense. He was a god. Um, he was the son of Lu, um, who is considered a, a god of the sun and a god of many talents and is obviously one of the most important gods in our pantheon. He was legitimately worshipped throughout Ireland. Um, so an extremely powerful uh, character and uh, Knudaral himself was a god of music, considered to be the most talented musician who's ever existed in Ireland. He played harp. He did, yes. And his music um, had magical properties. He could uh, sort of induce uh, prophecies and visions in others when they listened to his music. There are lovely little morals to the stories (laughs) as well, because, for example, with him, uh, he thought that all his mates loved him. 
yeah. until such time as they were jealous of him. Yes. And that's when they started slagging him off about his, his disability. Yes. Exactly. I think that's one of the nuances of um, of the story is that, yeah, he wasn't initially bullied for his uh, disability. Um, his friends were terribly understanding, empathetic as they should be. And he was just considered one of the lads. It wasn't until he sort of lifted his head above the parapet and became uh, more, demonstrated his talent um, that, that suddenly the discrimination started to come. So out. his talent was music. Dean mm. Kecht's um, talent was medicine. Yes. He was a surgeon. He was a surgeon. Surgeon to the gods. <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> you, yeah. should, you should be a graphic <laughs> illustrator to the gods. <laughs> yeah. Connor, the god. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so he, he developed the first prosthetic. Yeah. Here's me getting completely into it now. I know. But, but he developed a prosthetic limb for his brother, was it? He did, yes, for Nuadu. And again, a legitimate god, uh, Nuadu, otherwise known as Nodens in Britain. Um, he has shrines dedicated to him um, in Lydney Park in Gloucester. You know, these were very much worshipped gods, um, but he had, uh, again, he had a disability. He had lost his arm in battle. Um, he had to learn to fight again without it. And his brother, Dian Kecht, created uh, a prosthetic arm and it was and animated it so that it essentially took on a life of its own and uh, it became his... It was robotic. It, it was robotic. Back in the day. It was a robotic mm. prosthetic. And he couldn't be king unless he had two arms. Correct. So in ancient Irish tradition, um, beauty was very important and uh, kings had to be whole. And that wasn't just in the mythology. That came cropped up even in Breton law. So, mm. um, yeah, being whole and not having disabilities was considered important. And he, um, yeah, he... Were some of the gods that. based on mortals, mere mortals? They probably were. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of discussion and debate as to whether Queen Maeve was a, a historical person or um, a sovereignty goddess. And it's likely that she's an amalgamation of okay. both. There's a lot of violence in the book. <laughs> I know, I can't avoid <laughs> what? it. What? <laughs> yeah. There's a lot yeah. of decapitations. There's a few de- decapitations, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. What are we telling our as young people? Is, I know, as there is with girls who slay monsters, you know, and uh, yeah, th- there is okay. a little bit of that, but hopefully it's it's a smaller percentage. Author Ellen Ryan and illustrator Connor Merriman on The Ray Darcy Show. And that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. Remember, if you want to listen back to any of the shows across Radio 1, you can do that on rte.ie slash radio. So from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care.